Thank you, worship team. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, who would have thought we have had 29 inches of snow since the 1st of February? Seems like we got a whole lot of it this week. And I appreciate you being here, and I know we have a lot of sick people as well. I confess, I uh, learned about that this week in a personal way. I'm grateful um, to be much, much better. Worship, uh, Bridge Kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us. Please join your leaders at Bridge Kids. The rest of us will be in Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at a famous story in the Bible in verses 19 through 31. This is about regrets, having regrets. Our men just went to a conference, uh, several of them, uh, a couple weeks back. No regrets, living a life with no regrets. This is about regrets. Luke 16, verses 19 31, today brings us to the question of the afterlife. Jesus raises this all-important subject because from his perspective, what you believe has a major impact on how you live. Throughout history, humans have pondered and reflected on this concept of the afterlife, and they've made many postulations. Um, today, there is about as many viewpoints on the afterlife as there are people. A few, weeks, uh, a few years ago, uh, a study was done about what Americans believe about the afterlife, what, what they believe after death. And... Um, Here's uh, what they found. 10% of Americans believe we return to earth in a different form, some kind of reincarnation. Uh, this would include uh, perspectives from Hinduism and Buddhism, about 10%. Now, this is a few years back. It wouldn't surprise me that all of these, except one, are higher, and there is one that is lower. Second, 10% believe there is no life after death. That is... You die, you just shut down, you go unconscious, the body stops, and then you turn to dust. When I was in my early 20s, this is exactly what I believed. Just going to sort of like go to sleep, whether it was violent or not, and be unconscious and done. That's it. Why worry about it? And the impact of that is, if that's what you think, boy, you can live just about any way you want. If you think uh, money is the greatest thing, well, then go for it. If you think um, not getting out as much work as possible is the best way to go, then go for it. Um, if you think uh, making pornographic movies is the ideal life, then go for it. If you want to be uh, total drunkard or do drugs, then just go for it. It doesn't make any difference. If you want to be unfaithful to as many wives or husbands as you want, or if you don't ever want to get married, but you want to have a lot of partners, then just go for it. 24% of Americans believe that the soul lives in a different place determined by past actions. This would include many different religious views. 48%, at least back then, believe 
that we go to heaven or hell depending on our relationship with Christ. We've acknowledged our sin and put our uh, faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. Now, that includes the Bible-believing population, but it would also include at least some people, uh, nominal Christians or people just have just kind of, okay, I'm kind of like a Christian, and uh, that would include that. I'm guessing today that's even lower than it was then. And lastly, 8% are undecided. They don't know what they think. Maybe they don't even care. And I know that's true. Some people don't even care. It's not that they don't have enough information. They don't want any more information. My question to you is, what, what do you think? What do you believe about life after death? What's going to happen to you when you die? This is a very important question. It may not be an urgent question for you, but it could be a life-changing question uh, for you today. It's something that was on Jesus' mind in Luke chapter 16. Our passage brings this into focus. And um, before I read uh, the first part of the passage, let me just uh, kind of remind you, help set the context. We've talked about this already, but um, you know, maybe you didn't get to hear this before. Um, in Luke chapter 16, the first 13 verses, that's a story of the, uh, the parable of the shrewd manager. And um, he was shrewd because he prepared for the future when his mismanagement was discovered. Do you remember that? Jesus wanted his followers to be faithful, uh, faithful in how they handled their resources that God had provided for them, faithful in how they handled their money. This guy was shrewd because he figured out how to have friends for the future, and so they would welcome him. And Jesus wanted his followers to think about eternity and having friends that would welcome them into eternal dwellings, into heaven, about handling your money and being generous so that God's kingdom would advance and more and more people would, would know about having a relationship, would know the good news because generous people supported God's work. Um, Jesus wanted his followers to be faithful and to invest in the kingdom of God. Um, let me just go back and read verses 13 and 14. Uh, Luke, this is Luke 16. He said, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and money. That's what he wanted his followers. This was to his disciples, those who were following him, those who cared. This is what he wanted them to understand. You need to have one God, one priority, and put everything else under that priority. Do not put money up here and God on any other place. However, uh, the, he had an audience there that not were just his followers, but there were a whole lot of religious leaders listening in, and Jesus addressed them rather harshly in the next few verses. And uh, it is because, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Here were the religious leaders, 
the people who had this great knowledge of the scriptures and what God intended and what God wanted for his people, and they somehow had gotten things out of line, and they had put money up here. They had put money ahead of God. In fact, they believed that writ being wealthy was a sign of God's blessing on their life. Everything's okay. God's happy with them. And they believed that poverty was a curse, that poverty was a result of poor choices and sin, and it just proved that God didn't care about them. So in verses 19 through 23, and I want to read that, we see a great predicament. In verses uh, 19 through 23, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, that is a problem. There is a great predicament here. And we're going to start in verse 19 and uh, just uh, kind of make some observations as we go. Uh, in verse 19, we see the good life. This is like the American dream. And there'd be a lot of people in America that'd be really put a high value on this. You know, um, it comes from our history and rugged individualism. You know, work hard, be somebody, you can overcome all your problems, have the good life. The American dream. So there was a rich man. Remember, this is a story. This didn't actually happen this way. It's a story. Jesus is telling. He has important uh, truth that he wants his followers to understand, and he has important truth to the religious leaders because that's who he's speaking to now. He's still talking to the Pharisees. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. Now, Purple, you know, may not be your favorite color, may be your favorite color, but in the first century, it was a sign of wealth, great wealth, because purple was such a rare dye, and it was extremely expensive, and so rich people wanted to show that they could afford it. It was a status symbol. He didn't need to wear this color. But he wanted people to know. Um, he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Linen is for his undergarments. We know about his underwear. And he is a wealthy man because very wealthy people could have linen. Um, he lived in luxury every day. He had the good life. It was a signal to the rest of people in, in his culture that God had his back. He was a man blessed by God. 
And that's how the people in Israel would see this. The story continues in verses 20 and 21. Next, someone who doesn't look so blessed by God, he looks like he must be cursed. And this is the bad life. You know, that's pretty simple, the good life and the bad life, but that's exactly how it's going to be described here. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. By the way, there is no other parable that Jesus told where one of his characters had a personal name. And this name means helped by God. Now, I don't think this was, the, this is not the Lazarus of John 11 that Jesus raised from the dead. Okay, it's not, this is just a story, and this is just happens to be the man's name, but he gets a personal name, and it sort of signifies God is way more personal with him than he is with the rich man. So we don't know how he gets there. He's laid at a gate. The rich man has a gate. The rich man has a huge estate. He's very wealthy, and here Lazarus is, is probably can't walk, and he has sores, he has a bad skin condition, and he attracts dogs. Now, these aren't pets, these are scavengers, and they were part of the culture, and they, you know, they ate garbage. And so, this would be like humiliating for Lazarus, and it also, you know, in the religious community, made him unclean for this to happen. And he was so hungry, he just wanted to eat some kind of a table scrap or some crumbs from the rich man's table. So um, this is not a good situation. Verses 22 and 23, we see the great reversal. Time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The audience didn't see this coming. Jesus is talking to those religious leaders who have this perspective that wealth is good and wealth is, shows blessing of God and being poor means God's not on your team and you don't expect Lazarus to go to heaven. You obviously expect the rich man to go to heaven. And they, the angels came. And this doesn't mean we're teaching doctrine that angels come and do this. I don't know if angels come and uh, take the soul of a person to heaven. I don't know that. They did in this story. And they carry this Lazarus to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. It's, the idea is it's a very important place. It's uh, an intimate place. And Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Goes all the way back uh, to Genesis 12. You know the big, the patriarchs of the nature, nation, those uh, admired, respected leaders. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the one. He started it all. He started the nation. You can trace it through the Bible. And Lazarus is there. And Abraham's side, is, it means uh, it's the place of God to be where Abraham is. And uh, if you remember from a passage earlier in, in uh, Luke 13, um, Abraham is, is going to be at a great banquet, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, it's a very important place. It's about heaven. And here, Lazarus is there. 
We also learn that the rich man also died and was buried. That's too bad. But we're all destined to die once. The rich man died and was buried. I bet it was a great funeral. You know, was able to display who he was and what he had been. He couldn't take it with him, verse 23, in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. Who's with him but Lazarus? So a quick comment on Hades. Sometimes there's confusion about this concept. Hades refers to the place of death. In the Old Testament, there was a word in Hebrew, sheol, that referred to the grave or the place of death. It could be for um, believers or unbelievers. And Hades in other cultures refers to place of death, the grave, maybe the afterlife. But in the New Testament, please understand that this concept of Hades is never used for a believer. Never. There are no believers in Hades, whatever it refers to. And, and our writer here sees it as hell, which is exactly right. Lazarus is with Abraham. Lazarus has been helped by God. We don't know the facts of the story. We don't know how he got there. It's not just about who's rich and who's poor, and the poor go to heaven and the rich don't go to heaven. Abraham was a rich man. In Hades, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham. The rich man is not with God, and he is not with Abraham and all the patriarchs. The rich man is in torment. He is suffering. There has been a great reversal, a great surprise um, this was not what was expected of a rich man. Uh, he apparently had had the wrong information from his teachers that sort of like being a good person and um, being wealthy and going to synagogue was enough that God had blessed him and God was going to bless him with heaven. His worldly values are turned upside down in God's kingdom because that's what happens. God's values are upside down compared to the world. In verses uh, 24 through 31, we come to the great chasm. A chasm is a gap. In this case, there is a separation and it's insurmountable. And this we see, verse 24, So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. He is describing his suffering. He's in agony. It's pictured with fire. Now, the rich man still thinks he's on top because he has a message for Abraham and his desire is 
that Abraham do this, get it done, and that Abraham see that Lazarus become his servant. And he asks for this favor, and he expects Lazarus to bring him relief. Because, you know, Lazarus is obviously not as important as he is. Verses 25 and 26, we see the separation. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, while Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. There has been a great reversal, and now there is a great separation. There's a great chasm. There has been an accounting take place. After death. And we don't know all the facts, but we do know that God judges hearts. He's not so concerned about somebody's reputation in their community or their physical, um, what they bring in their appearance, but he's concerned about what's on the inside. He's concerned about what's on the heart. Um, and we don't see anywhere that. Lazarus is a complainer about his circumstances, even when he was suffering. We didn't see that. The values in heaven are different than the values um, in this life. In this life, the rich man had the so-called good life. Comfort, luxury, stuff, money, social standing, Lazarus got the bad end of the deal. He had the bad life. He, had, he suffered. He was in pain. He was uncomfortable. He struggled. He went hungry. God has always been compassionate toward the poor. And God has always wanted his people to be compassionate to the poor and the needy. Now, Lazarus is in the presence of God and he's being comforted by God in his people. Lazarus had a heart for God. We don't have all the facts. But this isn't just because he's poor. All the way through the Bible, God knows the heart. There has been a great reversal after death and it is irreversible. Now there is a great chasm set in place. Verse 26. Besides all, this, this is what Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. God is the one who, who created the great chasm. God is the one who set it in place. There is a huge separation, huge separation between God and and man. It's irreversible. It's insurmountable. It's immovable. It's impassable. God is the one who said it. And um, Abraham says, um, this chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
There's, once this happens, there's no exchange, there's no change. It's final, it's irreversible. This is total separation from God. This is a picture of hell, okay? It's very clear. Jesus taught about this a lot, and he described it with eternal suffering, eternal punishment. Now, this isn't a picture of hell in great detail. This is just a general idea here, but it's, Jesus has a whole lot more to say about it in other passages. We see the second request in verses 27 and 28. He answered, Then I beg you, Father. So the rich man speaking to Abraham becomes what? Look who's the beggar. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. He, wants, he still doesn't get it. He wants Lazarus to do his bidding. Send Lazarus. To my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Um, who does he care about? Well, he cares about five people. Five people. Who? His family. Doesn't care about a lot of other people, but there's five people he cares about. Why is that? He knows. They all have the same perspective that he does. That yeah, they're a little bit religious. Yeah, they go to synagogue. They're about money in the same way. And then Abraham responds, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And his point is, to the rich man, God has revealed this already. These, these are people of the book. This, this isn't people who have never heard before. This isn't people who don't have the Bible and don't understand it. These are two people who do understand, who have the scriptures. They've been taught it all of their life. They have had a high value for this as a nation, as a people. Okay, They have Moses and the prophets. What does that refer to? If you remember, that refers to all of the Old Testament. That's a way of talking about all of the books in the Old Testament together. What did God say in the Old Testament? And um, there's plenty of information about how important it is to love God and to love your neighbor and to be kind and compassionate to other people and to be generous and care for the poor, and to help provide for the poor. It's very, it's abundant in all of Scripture, in all of the Old Testament. Um, by the way, there's a passage in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, and Jesus said this, and this is actually, he said this early in his ministry, he looks what he says, he said, if you believed in Moses, he's talking to the religious leaders, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, they have the Old Testament. They profess to believe in the Old Testament. They claim that they do. And this, they, this Old Testament scriptures point to the coming Messiah, who would be the Christ, who is Jesus. They, it pointed to his coming. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You didn't get it. 
How are you going to believe me? Here I am. I'm the promised one. You talk about the kingdom of God. The king is present, and they haven't gotten it. Verse uh, 30, the descent, the rich man descends. He says, no, Father Abraham, you're wrong. Probably not a good call there, you know, not a good choice of words. Um, He disagrees with Abraham, but he says, but I have a better idea. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. I know this. And finally, in verse 31, Abraham responds, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. If they cannot accept the revelation of God in the scriptures, they will not accept some kind of miracle, even someone coming back from the dead. And if, as we have processed through the book of Luke, Jesus announced the good news in Luke chapter 4, and over and over he's been living it out, authenticating his message through his teaching and through his miracles to prove he's the one sent from God. Um, If they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Did someone rise from the dead? Well, yeah. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. This is a real person. In John chapter 11, if you know the story, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Mary and Margaret are his sisters. Lazarus has died. They've sent for Jesus. Jesus waits four days, shows up, calls him to come out of the tomb. Lazarus is raised. Next chapter, chapter 12. A large crowd found that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see the man who was resurrected from the dead, whose name was Lazarus, a real man. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They've got somebody resurrected from the dead, and they want to kill him. These are the religious leaders. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. They're losing popularity. And they want to kill Lazarus, and they want to kill Jesus. And that's Jesus' point. Now, by the way, it doesn't really make any difference which one came first, but it just proves what Jesus had to say. Not only that, who else is going to rise from the dead? On Easter morning, after Jesus is crucified and in the grave for three days, he's raised from the dead, and he appears and And the good news continues, and people refuse to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. We have the Bible more complete today. It's more sure. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus and his coming kingdom. The New Testament testifies personally with eyewitnesses about Jesus, who he he is, what he did, and what's going to happen in the future. And here's one of the points of the parable. Once your attitude toward God and his word is set, 
Once it's confirmed, it's, nothing will change it after your death. It's about where you come to terms with Jesus here and now in this life. Um, there is a great solution to the problem that we have. A lot of you know about the great solution. You have already experienced understanding who Jesus, Jesus is and what he's done for you and that he's offered you forgiveness and pardon by his grace. I'd like to remind us all, and if this is something you've not understood before, or you've not cared about before, I want to invite you to think through this very carefully, and we're all listening together. Uh, four things I want to say. First, acknowledge that we too have a predicament. There is a problem for all of us, and it is our moral failure before God, our moral debt to God. It is because of our sin. Isaiah chapter 3, uh, 53, verse 6. Now this is what, uh, how the uh, people in the Old Testament understood this. Now keep in mind, they understood in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God had created us, and he created us in the image of God, and he provided a way to have this relationship from the beginning and it was good. It was very good. And there was free communication. And God put them in a place of paradise. And, and boy, did they have the good life. In Genesis 3, it changes because of moral failure. And that begins to impact all of humanity. Jesus' audience understood that. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, Isaiah writes, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We had a shepherd, we had a great shepherd, and we left him. Each of us, each one of us, has turned to our own way. We have been selfish. Um, we have wanted to do our own thing. We have been stingy, and the Lord has laid on him. And he's going ahead, and here's a prophecy about Jesus Christ right here. The Lord... God laid on him, his promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the iniquity of us all. And that's a prophecy about how God would take the sin of the world and place it on Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's still coming. Second thing, understand that our predicament has produced a great chasm between us and God. There is a huge, insurmountable distance between us and God. It's not just a distance, it's a barrier. It can't change apart from God's intervention. Isaiah 59, verse 2. This is what they understood in the Old Testament. But your iniquities, meaning your sin, your moral failures, your iniquities have separated you from your God. By the way, not all mistakes that we make are sins. Sometimes we have standards that are not God's standards. Sometimes other people have standards on us that are not God's standards, and we can call them mistakes, and we can feel bad, bad about them, but they're not, sin. they're not sin. Sin is when we break God's standards, His commands. Your iniquities have separated you. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that 
he will not hear. God cannot have a relationship because of sin. He's holy, and sin messes everything up in having a relationship with him. In the New Testament, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. I want to focus on that. Wages, what we earn, there are consequences for choices we've made, actions we've had, attitudes we've had. The wages of sin is death. It's, death is about separation. Physical death is separation of the physical body from the soul that's eternal. There is a spiritual death. And spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God forever. And that's where the rich man is in the story. He's separated. He's experiencing eternal death, eternal separation that Jesus called hell. For, uh, thirdly, know that God has already provided the solution to our predicament. This is good news. God is the one who provided the solution because we cannot, we cannot in our own effort and own resources ever accomplish this. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. It's because of his love for us. I don't get it. You know, I don't see why he loves me. I can't figure out why he loves you. I know why he loves my wife. <laughs> no, but he, he loves us. I don't understand it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God demonstrated his love. Christ died for us. He took our place. He was our substitute. We deserve the death. The wages of sin is death. And he stood in there for us. He did it 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there. Why did he die for me? I don't know. He did. By the way, it's made all the difference in the world for my life. 1 Peter 3.18 now the passage, for Christ also suffered once for sins, meaning his crucifixion on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous. I am the unrighteous. He suffered for me. He died for me. Why? To bring you to God. We had this great chasm, and we would remain separated, except he died, and he wanted to bring us across that chasm. He wanted to make a bridge for us. That's why we call the bridge the bridge. He wanted to make a, the, a bridge where we could come into a relationship with him. He was put to death in the body. That's crucifixion. And he was made alive in the spirit. That's the resurrection. And it was proof to the whole world. His victory over sin, his victory over death, and his victory over Satan. Last thing, number four. Fourthly, trust God for his perfect provision for our, for our eternal destiny. This is what God wants from us. Trusting him. It's about having faith in him. It's about believing in him and what he has said and what he has done 
in Jesus Christ. Some people think if they just believe in God, that's what this is all about. Well, who is God? And what did he say? John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. That's present tense. It means right now. It doesn't mean just when you die. It means God gives you eternal life now. It means your sins are forgiven now. It's not when you die. It's now, presently. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Wrath is being in a, God's wrath on someone is being in a place of judgment. And they may not experience it right now, but it's coming and will come if there's no change. Rejecting the Son. Some people do um, intentionally. They take the facts and they, not me, I'm not going there. I don't believe that. And there are some people who just uh, like ignore it. Well, that may be an option. That's rejecting. And one of the things that's clear about our story is there is a time to make a choice, and there's a time when it's, you can't make the choice, and that's at death. After that, everything is done and locked in for eternity. And one of my favorite passages is John 5, 24. Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes believes what, who, who God is, what God said about His Son, Jesus, has eternal life. Present tense, right now, when you believe. For me, it happened September 29, 1974. I, was, I won't tell you how old I was. I used to always say that, but then people start doing the math. Believes him who sent me has eternal life right now, will not be judged, will not be condemned, will not face judgment in hell ever, okay? It's a promise from Jesus. It's true forever. Will not be judged. That's a promise for future. Has crossed over from death to life. That's something that already has happened. It happened to me September 29th, 1974 when I was a young man. Present tense has eternal life right now. Future tense, promise, will not be judged. And when one believes, it crossed over. Crossed over that great chasm. Crossed over to a relationship with God. So, what about you? What do you think of the afterlife? What do you think about what God says? That there is a heaven and there is a hell. You have a choice. All of us have a choice. Many of you have made a choice to follow Jesus Christ, to place your faith in him, to experience his forgiveness. God has one requirement, and that is for us to believe in Jesus and what he did for us, that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sin. 
It's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's about believing. And as we close this morning, I just want to say a prayer and give an opportunity to anybody in this room who's never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ before, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I would like to give that opportunity to you today. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say a prayer. I'd like to go through it two times because I want you to think about the words of the prayer that when I say it the first time. And then the second time, I'll just ask everybody in the room to bow their heads, okay? And we'll go through it again. So the first time is, I just want, I want you to think. So I, you look right at me, and uh, I want you to understand the words before uh, I ask you to pray. Because, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to lead you into something you don't want. But here's the prayer. It's a way to express your faith in Christ. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus Christ died for me, and, and he paid for my sin penalty. And I trust Jesus right now to pay the penalty for me to forgive my sins. And Lord, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Help me to learn to follow him day by day. You know what? It could be that simple. It's an expression of your heart. It's about your heart. Would you like to have that relationship with God through Christ? So let's all bow our heads this time. And if that prayer made sense to you and that's something you'd like uh, to pray, I, I invite you to pray with me silently from your own heart, just your heart to God. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I know I am. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. I trust Jesus right now who has paid for the penalty of my sin. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to learn to follow him day by day. Please help me. Now, if you uh, prayed that prayer with me, everybody's head still bowed. If you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind just slipping up your hand so I could see? If you prayed with me, just go ahead. Thank you. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. Anybody else? All right, thank you. Father, I'm so grateful for those who have raised their hands this morning and expressed their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's my prayer that um, they might experience forgiveness right now, that they might sense that... Um, you're present with them. I pray that you will give them a heart to follow you. I pray that they will desire to grow and connect with you and trust you with their life. And Father, I pray for all of us today um, as we think about this story and reflect about our heart attitudes, our attitudes toward money, our attitudes toward you, our attitudes toward generosity, our attitudes toward 
helping other people and being compassionate with people and loving people, whether they are poor or rich or whatever, whoever they may be, that we may be people of the book, people who reach out with compassion and kindness so that the good news might be clear. May we never confuse anybody by the way we live. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Let's all stand.